Welcome to Medicine for Good podcast. I am your host, Dr. Julieta Gabiola, clinical professor of medicine at Stanford University. What drew me to medicine was the science, the innovation, and the promise for a comfortable life. But what has kept me in medicine are the real people, their lives, and their stories, as well as the translation of medical innovations into practical applications. This podcast will explore experiences beyond the walls and corridors of the hospital, laboratories, and clinics. I invite you to share in our journey seeking to preserve and improve our lives, our sense of balance, and our well-being. So let's go on what are the other diets that you guys want to discuss that are important to discuss. Yeah, I thought what would be interesting just to kind of bring up was the paleo diet. Mm -hmm. I think there's a lot of confusion as to that paleo ultimately means high fat or high protein or whatever it is. And really, paleo doesn't have anything to do with your macronutrient ratios. Paleo is more of what would you find out in nature that necessarily you wouldn't have to process. Um, That doesn't mean you don't have to cook things. You're not going to be eating like raw beef or whatever, but it's going to be fruits, vegetables, nuts, seeds, and meat and, you know, food. But it's going to exclude, unlike the Mediterranean, you're going to have grains, legumes, things like that, and maybe a little bit of dairy. A real paleo is going to avoid those three main things. That'll be the main differences, grains, legumes, and dairy. And one of the reasons why is there's actually a great book I would highly recommend everyone read. It's called The Plant Paradox. I can't remember his first name, but his last name is Gundry. But he talks about different potential chemicals on the different plants that have a potential to irritate the gut. So the basic premise is us as mammals, we have the ability to run and fight to get away from our predators versus plants. They're there. (laughs) So they have to come up with their little spikes and all that kind of stuff on the outside of them. The chemicals that are on their skin or on their leaves or whatever. So depending on the quantity of what you eat, the hybridization of that food product and all kinds of other things that when you harvest it or when you pick the fruit or vegetable, all those things change the chemical profile. So it's a great book, but a lot of times those things tend to be in higher quantities, the irritating compounds tend to be in higher quantities and things like grains and legumes. We have certain cultural processes such as fermentation and cooking in certain ways. If you just pay attention to all the different cultures that cook grains and foods, they usually have a a very specialized process to do that, to eliminate a lot of those irritating things. So that's kind of one of the premises behind the paleo and avoiding those things. The other thing for avoiding dairy is it's pretty simple. It's like we're not baby cows or we're not, you know, we're not baby goats. So drinking their milk or having their dairy products, although it can have some nutrients in it, some people just don't do well with it. So that's kind of the underlying idea. And it just tends to be a little bit more on the, a little bit more fat, a little bit more protein, but it isn't necessarily, there's plenty of people who do paleo and they have a fairly low protein portion of their diet. They're eating tons of potatoes and sweet potatoes and things like that. So from your knowledge, Do you believe that most people that do choose a paleo diet, is it mainly because of, you know, sensitivity in the gut or like, what is your experience as far as why people would choose that diet? I do have a friend that she'd experienced a lot of sensitivity in her gut and it took her years to figure out why that was right. Because a lot of times it could be something like a gluten in your diet, but she started the paleo diet and immediately she saw like a really drastic improvement in her overall daily health and like lifestyle. 
But yeah, one of the things I've seen both myself and then also for many clients, a lot of it has to do with gut issues in the gut. So avoiding or you know eliminating a lot of those things from the diet tends to make huge improvements. And usually if people have issues in the gut, not usually, sometimes if they have issues in the gut, they'll have issues in their skin or their joints. Those are other things we see clear up quite a bit. Specifically, even though that's technically paleo, but avoiding nightshades. So tomatoes, potatoes, eggplants, peppers, those tend to also help with some of those irritants as well. I guess some advantages of it been shown to really improve weight loss also and some cardiovascular parameters in terms of cholesterol and triglycerides. So there's improvement of those parameters. But how hard is it to prepare a paleo diet? In terms of planning my meal, what should I think about in terms of preparation? It's actually really simple. Again, I think that's another one of those things because of the name makes it seem more difficult. But really, if you just take the Mediterranean diet, like let's just say a simple dish that you're going to cook with some seafood like shrimp, you would just cook it exactly the same. And then whatever grains that you were about to add, you don't add those. Simple, right? So I personally don't have a, a sensitivity to dairy. So I cook a lot of my stuff in butter. You can cook in coconut oil or, or anything else like that. Or olive oil, right? But well, that's a whole other side topic <laughs> as far as heating up olive oil. Right. Oh. Smoke point. So typically you want to cook first and then add it on later. Oh, I see. So isn't it expensive to have all this fresh meat and fish? Well, my personal experience, it's kind of one of those like uh, cliche type of things is how, how valuable is your health to you? Oh, okay. But really, once you focus on the quality, like you're getting grass-fed meat and free-range poultry and things like that, you get quite a bit of nutrients because you're eating real plants and real fresh stuff. You tend to get satiated a lot quicker. And that's another thing with kind of like the keto is you tend to get satiated a lot quicker just because of the different nutrients. So you end up eating usually a little bit less, which I think contributes to the weight loss and, and just overall decrease in inflammation. There must be something about microbiomes, right, that they do. It's so big now in terms of microbiomes and inflammation, generalized inflammation and healthy nutrition. So I think more to follow in paleo and microbiomes and other diet regimen. How about gluten-free? Everything that I see people now looking at labels like, oh, this has gluten and this. What is all about this big hype on gluten? There's a lot to it. Nicole, do you have any experience? <laughs> I personally don't. I've just heard my friends that have eliminated it from their diet. But personally, I still eat gluten and I still eat bread and all that good stuff. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. So I first found out about it. I had no idea what it was. And I think this was kind of early on when people started to make gluten-free products around 2009. And uh, it, was when, it was when a friend of mine shared with me the paleo diet. And that's when I got kind of off down the rabbit hole of, doing, of understanding it all. Yeah. So gluten is a specific type of protein found primarily in wheat, barley, and rye, right? So your breads and then also beer. But it's also a very hidden product in many different food products. So you might find it in like your seasonings, any type of gravy. It's flours added into so many things. So I'm kind of on the fence as far as if gluten is like this good or bad thing. I don't personally eat it just because I don't usually leads to some sort of problem for me, but I'm not really sure if it's 100% bad. But what the research shows, and there's a few like leading researchers, Dr. Alicia Fasano is one of them. And he talks about the leaky gut. 
how regardless if you have a GI problem or not, chances are you're not digesting it properly or it potentially could be leading to leaky gut. It's just that leaky gut type of issues, one of the primary ways it shows up is actually neurologically based. So there's a bunch of stuff and the research goes on and on and on. But the main reason that someone would want to avoid eating gluten is if they have an actual celiac. So it's an autoimmune condition where basically the small intestine basically just kind of whittles away and you stop absorbing as much nutrients as you can. And so that's not good because you can ultimately know what that's going to turn into, right? It's just, you're going to get emaciated and you're going to have all kinds of problems. So for someone who's been diagnosed celiac, the research is kind of here or there, one to 2% of the total population. And they do the diagnosis, one with a blood marker, and then two, they'll oftentimes go in with an endoscopy and check out to see what's going on in the small intestine. So that would be the primary reason you'd want to cut it out of the diet. But the other one is if you just want to experiment and see what it's like, it's free to do. You know, there's no charge to not eat gluten. You want to find out what are, what are you going to eat in its place. And so if you choose to do like the whole grains and you're eating whole wheat and all that, and you want to select something different, there's plenty of things out there that you can replace it with. My personal preference is to do something that's less processed than bread, actually like rice or quinoa or what other, other type of grains out there that you can cook and have as like a dish versus a processed food like that. So those are the different things. What it really causes is inflammation in a lot of people. And if we look at inflammation as one of these root causes for many different health conditions, if that's one contributor, it's worth your while to do an elimination to to see how you feel. And I know Dr. Gabriola, last time we spoke briefly, you were mentioning that, and I know this too, working with patients, running tests is if you're already not eating gluten and you suspect that you have either celiac or gluten sensitivity, and then you go get the test, it's going to show up negative, right? Yeah. So we advise people not to restrict their gluten and then we try to make the diagnosis. But most people restrict their gluten for whatever reason because they believe that it's not good for them. So it's hard to diagnose sometimes because you won't see the serological parameters that you want to see and you may not see the reduction of the ciliated lining in the gut, in the small intestine. So that's hard to do. And also, people would basically blame gluten for their symptoms of bloating, malabsorption, etc. when they have, for example, IBS. And it's important to determine that it's not just as simple as eliminating gluten because gluten is actually rich in prebiotics. So if you eliminate it, there's chances that you won't feed those good bacteria in our gut. And then that will even incite IBS and inflammatory bowel disease and may even be uh, causative for colorectal cancer or risk for colorectal cancer. So, you know, I think people, as much as they think that gluten wears that halo as a food item out there, it may not be that a saint-like food item that they would like to eliminate. I think the people with either sensitivity or direct allergy to gluten, probably those are the people who really would need to eliminate it. Yeah. And what are your thoughts to either one of you, if you have a personal experience as well, if someone does restrict gluten, not due to any inflammation or anything they experience, they just want to start eliminating it, something like gluten or dairy, do you think that in the future they can develop an intolerance to those things if they try to reintroduce it into their diet and how can that affect them? Actually, that's a huge thing that I studied quite a bit, you know, these functional nutrition type of 
classes is briefly earlier, I mentioned like mast cell degranulation, fancy word for allergies and stuff like that. But what they're showing is that when people do an elimination diet and they go really strict, like let's say paleo, right? Just put some vegetables, nuts and seeds and some meat, whatever type of protein it is. And then they subsequently resubject themselves to whatever gluten contains. It could just be a sandwich. They tend to get a multiplier type of effect as far as the symptoms that they had before. So whether it was an IBS type of symptom or skin condition, whatever it may be, chronic pain, I think it has something to do with the those inflammatory cells got the ability to build up their storage. And then all of a sudden, bam, you release everything. And so you, you get hit with it pretty hard. Tends to be, in a lot of the stuff that I've studied, tends to be more so with grains. But I would imagine it's probably very similar to dairy as well. I think part of the issue is we might not know. And the other thing, too, is very subjective. That's the part that is. You might not know how, quote unquote, good you could feel without those things of a potential low, like a constant chronic low inflammatory state, you remove it, you start to feel good. And then you just get brought back up to where you were. But compared to what you were feeling during that time, it may be really, really horrible, plus a little bit extra on top of that. It's and hard to know what happens on the cellular level. So for example, with gluten, People who are celiac with celiac proof, for example, and have malabsorption, and there is this reduction on the villi in the small intestines. I don't know what happens to that because I know, for example, in diarrheal state, when people have diarrhea, even if they're not lactose intolerant, during the diarrheal diet, they are lactose intolerant. You know, adaptability of small intestines, nobody knows because we don't biopsy everyone, right? And we don't yeah. know what happens actually on the enzymes on the brush borders of the intestines. So that would be actually a nice thing to consider, like what happens when you reintroduce it, what happens to people's sensitivity to a certain food item. Okay, yeah. moving on. Yeah, I'd love to hear more about the intermittent fasting. I think that's another popular diet, right, among everyone right now. So intermittent fasting. So what is it? It is basically a diet program where people basically have an eating schedule and a fasting schedule that is reasonably planned and fixed. So it has a different variety of intermittent fasting, but the main gist is fasting is like in ketogenic diet. There's a metabolic switch during that time that people fast. So there are many important schedules that people do. I think, again, it has to be taken with a grain of salt and what's doable for an individual. I think if someone hasn't done intermittent fasting, they should probably start slow. People probably would not have problems with 12 and 12, like 12 of eating schedule and 12 of fasting, because in general, most of us fast probably about 10 to 12 hours, depending on how much is your bedtime component? Like how much time do you take for sleep? But most people probably would not have a problem with 12 and 12. So probably a recommendation will start with 12, 12, and then go to 16 hour fast and eight hour of eating. 
and some people would have an intermittent day, like a day of a full component of whatever they eat and one day and then the next day they fast. So that's intermittent day fasting. And some people would do a five day eating and two day of fasting. There are some people who would do one week every month of fasting. Like they consider that as basically a purifying, like detoxifying, you know, or what have you. So I think alternate day fasting, whole day fasting, time restricted feeding, you could vary the schedule based on your preference and what you could put up with. But the main gist, I believe, will be insulin sensitivity. So go ahead, Drew, and talk more about whatever you think about intermittent fasting. Yeah, I think it all kind of goes back to the beginning, like we mentioned before, as far as the lifestyle and what you can do and what you find convenient, right? So if you choose to do this intermittent fasting of eating your food within a certain period of time, one, can you actually tolerate it? And then two, maybe it does help your lifestyle. Maybe skipping breakfast is great because you like to go to the gym in the morning and you don't like to have a full belly when you go to work out. And then you don't have any time to eat until lunch. Totally fine. There's no rule that says that you have to eat right after you work out. That's one of those myths. We're all not professional athletes, so you don't have to make sure you're ready to go in four hours from now. You know, the Olympians, on the other hand, that are in the Olympics right now, they have a completely different thing that's going on. They have to go and do sprints like in five minutes again. Yeah, anyway, so the goal is, does it work with your lifestyle? And it kind of brings us back into that state of ketosis where we get into our fat stores. It's like we're like a diesel truck carrying this huge fuel supply, but we can't tap into it. So imagine those fuel trucks, right? They have these big tanks of gas, and then you just got the gas to run the truck, but you can't tap into all that fuel in the back. That's essentially what we have going on. No matter how skinny you are or low body fat, hundreds of thousands of calories stored up within you. And you can tap into, especially during the longer periods of not eating. And so one, obviously, because you're not eating, you're not raising blood sugar, therefore you're not raising insulin, which low insulin means you're able to tap into that and make more ketones. And you just you work on that hybridization of your body, being able to better burn the different fuels. Also, what I found in my personal experience doing, you know, I've tried anything from a 16, 18 hour fast to I've even fasted for up to five days. There's a mental part of it. So I like to look at it kind of like a game. So, you know, like how far can I go uh, and do I start to notice any sort of stress building up in my body? And does it have anything to do with my lack of food? Or is it because of the situation I'm presented with? So I think that's another part too, that's another one of those environmental hormetic stressors that we have, just like exercise, that we can really sort of just sit into and relax and see. Obviously, if you know you're going to eat later in the day, it's really not that big of a deal. You just got to have the confidence of when you're going to get there. But the goal really is to work on that hybridization of your body, tap into the fuel source and burn some fat in the meanwhile. And ultimately, if you're having a very small feeding window of four to six hours, maybe even up to eight hours, you'll typically have, on average, you'll have less calories in that time zone. So it might help you in the effort to drop a little bit of weight. Yeah, yeah. Actually, people drop weight because the main overall effect is really a reduction of calories. So a reduction of calories and then metabolic switch again with decreased insulin secretion, so decreased storage. And then it actually had improved many different parameters, not just weight, but cardiovascular parameters. People felt better. They have more control. They feel that they are in control. So the question is, 
what do you think would be the pitfalls for this particular diet? It's amazing that during the olden days, we eat when we have food. We always have the storage. It's not, we didn't die. The hunters, if they couldn't catch anything, they just eat whatever is available or they just don't eat. But now we have plenty of food around and we have all the time to eat it while we're watching TV and being sedentary, watching and streaming with food and very, very sedentary. That's not a problem. We have all the storage. But what do you think are the pitfalls for this intermittent fasting? Besides that, it's very challenging and might be very difficult for people or psychologically difficult for people. Yeah. The first thing I would want to ask is, Nicole, have you tried fasting at all? So I haven't tried it. I'm actually, you know, it's funny that you mentioned this. I'm actually challenging myself this month, which is kind of why I asked that question about intolerance. I'm not eating gluten or dairy this month just to see how my body reacts to it. But I do know a lot of people that have tried intermittent fasting. And from my understanding, you're not really restricted on the foods you can eat. And sometimes people are allowed to have like just a black cup of coffee in the morning before they have their meal. But personally, I have not done it myself. I have tried it because in the Catholic religion, you know, you have to fast at certain times, so religious wise. And I was very hungry. And I think it's psychological because I'm sure I have a lot of storage. (laughs) (laughs) But I was really hungry. So that's what I had experienced. But I'm actually thinking about planning it. And I said, that's not hard to do. A 12 and 12 will not be so hard for me to do. So I think I'll start with the 12 and 12 and see where it goes and then increasing that and see where I would be less hungry. Yeah, I think that's probably the first pitfall or difficulty is just getting over that that hunger pain, what it's like. I never really realized this until maybe just a few months ago, but I remember back as a child, I would have breakfast and then I wouldn't eat until dinner, always wanting to play. So naturally, I was always used to having a little bit of that hunger sensation, or I would do different type of sports, might be football practice that would take three or four hours, I wouldn't eat before and I wouldn't eat an hour afterwards. So yeah, I think I was used to it. Some people aren't. So it does take a while. So I think that's the one thing is just the hunger pains that you feel when you first start off. A potential hypoglycemia, I guess, for people who are predisposed to hypoglycemia. And I ask people, sometimes they feel headachy and fatigued initially, and they don't know whether they were hypoglycemic, but they never really checked their glucose. So potential for headache and fatigue initially. But overall, I think the people that I had asked on intermittent fasting, they felt better. They were more energetic. Their focus was better. It's not just the overall weight loss, but overall, they felt really good. But I probably would not try it on people again who have diabetes, where they have to eat at a certain time, especially if they are on medications. People who would need medications to be taken with food, eating disorders, for example, people who are active, like growing actively like adolescents, and people who need nutrients like pregnant women and breastfeeding women. So I think people with problems with disordered intake of food, like eating disorders with anorexia and bulimia, for example. So I think apart from that, intermittent fasting may be a good way to not only lose weight through decreased overall calorie consumption, but it may improve people's insulin sensitivity. Yeah, I wanted to add that one of the other like downsides is 
let's say you were to fast for an entire day or only have a four hour eating window to the point where you get pretty hungry. The downside is that if you don't have a plan, you're going to eat garbage food. When you are on that eating window, we'll try to get everything in there for that four hours. Yeah, but I promise this because I've done it both ways. (laughs) If you set it up right and you have the discipline to eat something like a salad, like the salad is your first part of your meal, maybe with some berries or something like that. And then you have maybe some vegetables and some meat. You will feel way better than if you just go straight for like in and out or something like that. I know we talked about, you know, starting with the 12 hour, 12 hour window. And of course, lifestyle and your day to day movement is really important and the hours that you select. But are there other recommendations that you can give on how people can determine what their eating window should or shouldn't be? Yeah, I would say first, like Dr. Gabriela was saying, is make sure that like if you have different medical conditions that require you to eat food and diabetes and stuff like that, definitely make sure that's all that all has to be kind of like the primary concern. But once you got kind of that under control and you don't really have anything, you're just like, okay, I'm a little bit overweight. I want to drop a couple pounds. Really, it's going to go to what fits your lifestyle. And do you have experience of not eating for several hours? And what are your tendencies? Are you going to tend to go for junk food? What's your accessibility to junk food? And are you setting yourself up for success? Or are you setting yourself up for suboptimal success? <laughs> that's not a failure, right? Mm-hmm. So really, really, that's probably the primary thing is like, what is it going to take for you? And then do you feel like naturally your tendencies, do you feel like breakfast, lunch, or dinner would be the easier meal to skip? Some people it's dinner, right? They Maybe they work out in the evening and they just don't feel like eating afterwards. Totally fine. There's no rule. I know for me personally, breakfast is the thing that I could care less about. But some people it's like they'll eat breakfast and they'll eat dinner. So that gives them a good 10 hours, 12 hours or so of not eating, depending on when they actually eat. You know, if you want to go into the research side of things, there's some evidence and research to support like eating several hours before you go to bed tends to help with you sleeping better. Maybe not eating before you go to bed can help with fat burning while you're sleeping because that's a really that's a high time where you're producing a lot of growth hormone and a lot of repaired processes are happening. So I know in different, I think it's like traditional Chinese medicine, they focus on making sure your belly's not full as you go to sleep. They call it detoxification, but it actually improved mitochondrial network function and at the growth hormone. Yeah. And so people really on this intermittent fasting, they notice improved cognitive performance, improved physical performance. They feel they're aging gracefully and healthily. And I think it actually, as I mentioned, it improves many different glucose parameters and, you know, lipid metabolism. So as it increases lipolysis. So it's actually overall good. I think it's just finding the right combination of a schedule and it might even simplify food preparation because you will only prepare for two and may save even money, right? So we're about at the end. I think I would want to talk about mindful eating and how important it is. Like many of us with the business of our lives would eat our meals in front of a computer or I tend to inhale my lunch from one building to the next because I just don't have time to sit down and eat or I combine many different activities while I'm eating because I just don't have much time to do the rest of the activities within 24 hours. So I think most of us who do not appreciate mindful eating, I would like to describe that. 
I would like to people to stop whatever they're doing and just experience the food that they're taking. Experience the taste, the flavor, the texture of their food, and even share the food with your family. You know, how many of us will have our family, they just go in, take a, a thing in the refrigerator, go to their room, or everyone is eating their pizza and watching TV, you know, nobody talk to each other anymore. So I think I would like us to be mindful of what we put in our mouth and mindful of the social interaction that we have and mindful of what good food can bring to us. So I will end it to that and parting words from either of you, Nicole and Drew, for our audience. Yeah, I mean, I'll just say on the topic of mindful eating, I think at the end of the day, you know, food and your diet and your lifestyle, I love food, right? So if I don't need to restrict something, I'm not going to restrict it, or at least I'll do it in moderation. But don't create this life experience where you're not enjoying moments in your life, like allow yourself to be adaptable. I think that's so important in choosing what diet is for you and not being so strict or hard on yourself. If maybe in the beginning, you have a hard time and it's not as easy as it was for someone else. So make sure that you understand you are an individual. Everything needs to be, you know, everything is subjective. It is important to adapt and modify to what is best for you and still enjoy the process of living when choosing these different diets. Thank That's you, great. Nicole. Drew? That's great, Nicole. I, I appreciate that. That's like one of my favorite words that I use in my office all the time is adaptation. That's really all we do is we just adapt to the environment. It's our inability to do that is when we're not thriving. And that's really what I try to help people do. So I really appreciate that. For my thing, when it comes to mindful eating, I try to be very simplistic. I look at other cultures and other things that have been around for thousands and thousands of years. And one of those things is that breaking bread with your neighbor or those kind of things where food is something very sacred because it's a life-saving, not life-saving, life or death, but it allows us to experience life. And it stimulates so many different senses from sight to smell, to taste, to touch. And then the emotional connection with the people you're around. You know, one of the things I don't do all the time because sometimes I forget, but usually I just put my hand over my food and just say a little prayer. Thank you for this food that's going to enter my body and recognize that it's going to become part of me in every single cell of my body. And uh, just giving that and recognizing how powerful that can be really allows you to connect with your own body. And, you know, I think it just starts you off on that path of really seeing how you can live your life to your full potential. That's like my whole thing. So, yeah, that's all I got. Thank you so much. And again, uh, mindful eating, be compassionate to yourself. If you cannot stick to a certain diet, give yourself some room and flexibility, and that will help you build your resilience. Thank you so much, Drew and Nicole, for participating in this podcast. Thank you. Thank you for having us. Summary for intermittent fasting. Evidence for efficacy of intermittent fasting is mixed. There are many popular methods in intermittent fasting, but it should be guided with several principles. A variety of the regimen, each of them have benefits and challenges, so simplicity is crucial. And it should be, again, based on your preferences and lifestyle, what fits your schedule. The important thing is sustainability, again, and durability, it matters. We should be patient, eat healthy during the time that you're eating. 
And it is important to mix high plant-based food like vegetables and fruits, whole grains, healthy fat, and protein to maximize the health benefit of intermittent fasting. So food quality is really important during the eating cycle and that you should not come overcompensate during the time that you're eating. Try to eat normally when you're on your non-fasting mode. Again, the goal is really important in terms of your intermittent fasting, be it weight loss or be it management of metabolic disorders or disease prevention. What happens in intermittent fasting is that the summary of it is we eat fewer meals, so we eat lesser calories, unless, of course, you overcompensate. And the effects of intermittent fasting extends beyond weight loss. It is the improvement of insulin sensitivity and decreasing insulin resistance. It's improvement of the metabolic parameters. It's decreased oxidative stress and inflammation, and also decrease of DNA fragmentation and degradation. In addition, there is increased growth hormone, uh, which facilitates fat burning and skeletal muscle gain. And it also, it is the metabolic switch from this hormonal changes as well as norepinephrine secretion that maintains the fat burning of intermittent fasting. Research also shows that there's increased autophagy, uh, which is the cellular repair mechanism in our body that translates to removal of waste material from our cells. So intermittent fasting may have a crucial role in cancer prevention and also in Alzheimer's or dementia. In summary, the effects of intermittent fasting extend beyond weight loss, and it is the enhancement of our cellular and neurobiological mechanism that is important. There is uh, improvement of blood pressure, blood sugar, and total cholesterol and LDL cholesterol during intermittent fasting. Thank you. Thank you so much for listening to Medicine for Good podcast. If you enjoyed the show, please share with family and friends, rate and review us on iTunes, Spotify, Amazon, ACAS, and YouTube. Follow me on social media at Dr. Jet on Twitter and Facebook. Meanwhile, stay safe, stay well, and stay connected. See you on our next episode.